The Car Show has aired Saturdays on KPFK. The auto world might have looked a little bleak in the 70s, but the future is much brighter today. New technology, new fuels, new ways to make driving easier and safer. But we still like to look in the rearview mirror at the classics. Join us each Saturday afternoon for The Car Show. Right here on 90.7 KPFK. This is KPFK 90.7 FM. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Here are today's headlines. L.A. City Council Ordinance on Catholic Converter Theft. History of West Coast Hip Hop with film Eve After Dark. South Africa Against Loading load-sharing, and ongoing power outages. International news from non-NATO media outlets, commentaries with Lizette Silo and Darren Brown, and the community calendar. All this and more coming up. Good evening. I am I am Angela Birdsong. <laughs> Over 30,000 workers represented by the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, Local 99, have officially begun their three-day strike Tuesday morning. Despite the torrential rain, teachers, students, cafeteria workers, bus drivers, custodians, special education assistants, and others from around Los Angeles School District marched outside their campuses, holding signs that read, We keep schools safe. Respect us. Fighting for clean, safe, and supportive schools. And others held memes with Rihanna's face that read, District better have my money. In support of educators and all LAUSD employees, businesses around Los Angeles are offering their support via food. Some set up shop outside local campuses, while others are offering educators and student discounts while they strike. L.A. Taco reports they are building a growing list of businesses standing in solidarity with educators. On Tuesday, March 21st, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors declared the March 7th, 2023 City of Inglewood Council District 1 runoff election officially concluded with the submission of the final official election returns from Dean C. Logan, Los Angeles County Registrar Recorder County Clerk on March 17th, still showing Gloria Gray in the lead. According to the City of Inglewood City Clerk's Office, the final election results will be placed on an upcoming Inglewood City Council meeting agenda for, for approval in April 2023. You have one more week to catch the Pan-African Film Festival virtual experience until March 31st. And one of the films you may want to add to your viewing list is Eve After Dark. This documentary chronicles the humble 1979 beginnings of the landmark Los Angeles hotspot to its Super Bowl 56 halftime show recognition. Told through storytelling of owner Alonzo Williams, the DJs, artists, and comedians who launched or elevated their careers at the club. The film is a candid behind-the-scenes look at the first West Coast hip-hop club. At the height of its prominence, Eve After Dark was home to the world-class wrecking crew, founded by Williams, featuring Dr. Dre and DJ Yella. Comedians D.L. Hughley, Chris Tucker, Robin Harris, and Anthony A.J. Johnson were also regular performers. East Coast acts Run DMC and Curtis Blow booked their first Los Angeles appearances at the venue. The story of Eve After Dark is one man's triumph 
to create a safe space for Compton's youth in the early 1980s. Alonzo Williams addresses the matter of safety today compared to when Eve After Dark started on June 22, 1979. Looking at the current landscape of Los Angeles, what is missing in the club scene, the entrepreneurial scene for musicianship the way that you established it back in the, in the 70s? Originality and venue that people could go and, and uh, have a good time at and feel safe. Safety is no longer, in the, safety, partying is no longer a safe environment, especially for our youngsters, it's ridiculous. We have, uh, every time there's a party, somebody dies. Uh, uh, my buddy was joking, instead of partying the party, so somebody's dead, which is a damn shame. And uh, violence has become synonymous with our parties these days. And that's the problem. It's just too much going on these kids don't have a chance to be kids no more. So we got we got to find some we got to find something that's controlled by adults. Adults are not involved in the um, atmosphere. So the kids pretty much left to do what they want to do. You know, if you give your kid the grocery list, they're gonna buy all the bang bangs and sugar all they want. Ain't nobody gonna buy no vegetables. We need to put some vegetables back in the party atmosphere for these youngsters. Here are some highlights from the panel discussion during the Pan-African Film Festival at the Cinemark Baldwin Hills Theater. There's already three documentaries, two documentaries in process of being done on me and Wrecking Crew and Dr. Dre or whatever. But he said, man, let's focus on, the, I'll focus on the Super Bowl and the Eve After Dark. And that's a story that nobody, nobody thinks about. Um, uh, one of my other guys was upset. He said, man, you're going to tell all your stories. I said, look, I've been doing this for a long time. I can't tell all my stories no hour and a half. I'm going to do five documentaries. It would take a whole a mini series to tell you all the different aspects of what I had. To, I've, I've endured from Wrecking Crew, Eve After Dark. My house is a story by itself. The house I own right now, I bought it from Johnny Otis, a blues singer. I was uh, turned onto the house by Etta James. So this, my whole surroundings has been somewhat of a. Um, I'm the missing link between old school and new school. I got my good partner, Steve Bradford here, State Senator, much love to you, thank you for coming out, Doc. And let's give Alonzo a round of applause, yes, director, producer, amazing product, and it tells an amazing story, one that I was honored to live and share for, what, the last 45, 50 years, our paths have crossed a young man growing up here in the community in the South Bay and Compton, and being competitors, but as though it's seen, iron sharp, sharpens iron. We knew we was always going to have to be at our best if we were promoting the club or doing an event. Hey, hip-hop on the West Coast wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. And that's true. That's true. I was promoter, and I wasn't quite hip-hop. I, that's, that's I, I, we used to check each other out, but I was like, I wasn't feeling it. It was a lot of us that wasn't feeling it. I had a lot of early... Uh, demos of artists before they, the Wrecking Crew, uh, with the Battle Ram, that one right there. Somebody brought that to me and said, hey, this is going to be a hit. And I remember sitting in the room, we were laughing. We said, nobody's going to buy this. But this guy was believing all of that. And he was doing all of that back then. And he had a vision. So I'm honored to be here. And I'm glad I was able to lend my voice in some small way and be here with you tonight. So congratulations. You know what? Before I go, I gotta shout out to all my DJ buddies. All my DJ buddies in the house. Uncle Jam's on me too. Where y'all at? Battle Cat, I see Dave, I see Jerry McGee, Edwin. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, my name is DJ Q9. I'm one of the co-producers of the film and also the, um, the composer of some of the music that you hear in the different scenes. And it is just an honor and a pleasure to be here with all of you here. And of course, the godfather of hip hop. Godfather! And, and to Money Train, who is also a producer here, Velo, uh, who is also a DJ, who I call the connector. But there's another connector that's in the house, and his name is Aaron. And he's sitting right here in the front, also a producer as well. Uh, Aaron! I met, I met Aaron at an open mic poetry event that I was doing. Uh, we connected. Um, he started doing videos, taking pictures. And then eventually I was like, yo, man, I really like your work. I introduced him to Velo, and he introduced us to Lonzo. And then everything just kind of went from there, and uh, we just really had a good time, so. Yes, Tim Conley, also known as Professor T, or to Lonzo Professor, as he calls me. Uh, I'm happy to be here, happy to work with this team. Uh, David, fantastic job. Uh, yes. Godfather of West Coast Hip Hop. Yes, sir. 
he deserves all the credit in the world. We have, this film is phenomenal and it's a part of what we call transmedia, meaning we are building a world around content and at the center is the godfather of West Coast hip hop. So proud of what you've done, Lonzo, and, and the whole team here with this film and I'm proud that I got to come on board as a producer for this project, thank you. Also, it will be shown on some college campuses too, so there'll be some opportunities locally, probably USC, Santa Monica College, Cal State Northridge, and other places to see the film as well, in addition to distribution on television and other platforms. How many of you, um, how many of you know Lonzo? First of all, raise your hand, if you know Lonzo. How many of you learned so much more about Lonzo today? Is that incredible or what? I mean, and, and I'm glad that we're having this now and not at your funeral. Thank you. Okay. Feel good. Feel good. <laughs> okay, and then and then think about all the people that came out of that whole movement and stuff. We got gangsters, we got senators, we got and everything in between. We, hey, we got Super Bowl hosts, we got billionaires, we got everything. You know what I mean? Pastors. Yeah. Okay. But thank you, Lance. You did an awesome job. You guys did an incredible job. I love all y'all. Thank y'all very much. Nice shout out my wife. Thank you, For more information about the Pan African Film Festival virtual experience and the film Eve After Dark, go to PAF.org. P-A-F-F.org. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. Black Joy, that's a new sound of the protest. And I promise when I meet the king, he ain't asking me for none of this acoustic stuff. We gonna shake it up, spit a 16, and that's crazy. The Los Angeles City Council tentatively approved an ordinance that would prohibit unlawful possession of catalytic converters in an effort to curb the rise in thefts the city has experienced in the past five years. According to the motion, which was presented in April 2022 by Councilman John Lee, and Paul Kikorian, and then Councilman Mitchell Farrell, 972 catalytic converters were reported stolen across the city in 2018. In 2022, the city reported almost 8,000 catalytic converter thefts, a nearly 728,000, 728,000, percent increase, not thousand, hundred percent increase just within the last five years. Lee said during Tuesday's city council meeting, when crime data show this kind of escalation, I believe at this time we need to act, Lee said. Lee explained the ordinance would require someone who's in possession of an unattached catalytic converter to produce a form of valid documentation that would prove they are in lawful possession of the device. A catalytic converter is an exhaust emission control device that converts toxic gases and pollutants in exhaust gas from an internal combustion engine into less toxic pollutants, the motion read. Catalytic converter thefts are on the rise nationwide, and California has the dubious honor of leading the country in the number of converters stolen, according to the motion. Because of the external location and the use of valuable precious metals, these devices are a target for thieves. Councilwoman Monica Rodriguez thanked Lee for his motion and said the thefts affected the most vulnerable neighborhoods in the city. However, Councilwoman Eunice's Hernandez opposed the ordinance as drafted because she felt it would cause more harm than good, particularly to vulnerable communities. I believe that we should be supporting our communities, educating our families, and educating car owners about this issue that's occurring very frequently. To criminalize the mere possession of a catalytic converter, I think, is the wrong way to go, Hernandez said. Under the ordinance, she noted Angelinos can be fined $1,000 or be placed in jail for six months if they are found guilty of unlawful possession of an unattached catalytic converter. Even a short incarceration of a couple days can destabilize someone's life forever and leads to collateral consequences that they have to carry until they can get an expungement, if they can get that, Hernandez said. She also further discussed. She also supported further discussion with the Los Angeles Police Department and other stakeholders on how to solve the issue and possibly implement more solutions to prevent the theft of catalytic converters. Council members Marquise Harris Dawson, Nathia Raymond, 
Hugo Soto Martinez and Hernandez voted against the motion in an eight to four vote. The issue will return to the council for final vote in April. Tens of thousands of people protested in South Africa over power shedding or power outages because the collapse of the ESCOM power system, which the ANC government has allowed extensive privatization. Shaheen Khan, a labor community activist, is interviewed by Pacifica's Steve Zeltzer and talks about the action on Tuesday, March 21st. This can last anywhere between 6 and 12 hours a day. Some areas are often without electricity for days. Economists say the blackouts are costing the country thousands of jobs and damaging its economy. The government and state utility company call that load shedding, and it's angering much of the country. Yes, I'm very angry. I'm very angry times hundreds. I'm very angry. Because when I knock out to work, where's that going to be? I have to leave bread. It is time that we took a stand as the people of the country against this corrupt government that we have. And fight for what we have as rights in this country. It's time for us to stand together. I'm Shaheen Khan. Um, I'm a member of the shutdown Potches Room. Uh, committee uh, that participated uh, in the shutdown process um, um, in Pochestrum. The Pochestrum is 120 kilometers um, west of Johannesburg. Um, It's a small town, relatively small town, but has a working class of about 400,000 people, I think. Um, The EFF um, had called for a shutdown. But we did not respond uh, to that. It was when the South African Federation of Trade Unions, SAFTU, um, endorsed the call for a shutdown, uh, saying we're going to be participating on a united front basis, that comrades uh, began organizing um, this committee, which comprises uh, 14 in uh, 14, well, a uh, steering committee which uh, organizes 14 informal settlements uh, in and around the old group areas, as well as activists and comrades from uh, the other uh, extensions, as well as areas in the old group areas, if one understands South Africa. Uh, These are largely black people. By black, we mean uh, uh, oppressed people, um, so-called Indian, colored, and African, and uh, who are far removed uh, from the city center um, which com- and suburbia, which comprises largely white and a sprinkling of upper-class blacks in a kind of uh, neo-apartheid uh, setup in, in, in our area. And the uh, power outages, why don't you talk about the effect of the power outages uh, in South Africa, what that has meant for the working class, the poor in South Africa? Yeah, it's it's been devastating uh, for people who have had electricity. But one, and if one understands the black areas uh, where we live, large proportions of people living in the informal settlements do not have access to electricity. Um, they've uh, largely got what they call illegal connections, connections they've made to the grid themselves. Um, but the load shedding has just destroyed any access to electricity. Uh, for many hours a day, people don't have access to electricity. And it has been particularly devastating to the small business communities in and around the black areas. Um, the 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 uh, businesses in town, for instance, in the in the city centre, um, have increasingly been uh, uh, 
dis- dismissing and retrenching workers, and um, it's 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 had a devastating effect on uh, life in general. Um, for most people, um, the load shedding is a deliberate attempt to privatize uh, the the energy supply. And uh, the privatization of the energy supply um, is aimed at ensuring wealth for those um, members of the ruling class who are involved in IPPs, uh, alternative power producers. Um, and of course, they link to ANC ministers. And uh, one of the famous, I think, ones is um, Motsepe, who is the brother-in-law of Cyril Ramaphosa. So the general perception is that the load shedding issue is a deliberate issue and um, the aim is to, 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 to destroy the power generation capacity of ESCOM and, uh, uh, you know, uh, ensure that we move towards uh, uh, in- independent power producers and the privatization of the energy sector. And what happened in this work stoppage protesting the power outages? Uh, they suddenly, uh, when the, when the shutdown began, uh, they suddenly there was no longer uh, uh, power shortages. Uh, the load shedding was reduced by many stages from four and five stage four and five, which it was uh, a few days before then, to stage two and one. But in fact, was uh, totally. Um, uh, removed, and we've had uninterrupted power for the last two days. That is the day of the shutdown, and even today, um, there is talk of load shedding tomorrow, but only stage one and two. Now, this makes people wonder. Uh, it is a long weekend here, so there would be. Uh, uh, a reduction in in, in, in the, the demand for power. But it's amazing that the moment the, the talk of shutdown, uh, then of course, uh, uh, power was, 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 uh, became, was, was no longer such a problem. The same thing actually applied when we had water cutouts in our area. We had been having intermittent water cutoffs, uh, supposedly because of load shedding and the inability to pump water up to our areas, while the white areas in town were receiving uninterrupted water supply. Um, we, we, we organized a meeting and, uh, where the, uh, municipal manager came to address us. Uh, the municipal manager didn't have an explanation that was satisfactory and the community was extremely angry. It was the largest community meeting we've ever had in our community hall. And, uh, the police then came to abduct the municipal manager claiming that uh, we had held him hostage, which there was no truth to. Um, they surrounded the building. They got hold of him. They 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 took they lift, uplifted his his vehicle, and uh, he was then taken away. The next morning, the community organized to go to the municipal offices uh, for a protest. And uh, when we got there, he came to address us, and just suddenly, they had found the ability to provide water for us. Um, by, five, by by 6 p.m. that evening, we were supposed to receive water, but we received water at about 7.30 p.m. For that weekend, we had water, and then the water cutoff started again. Um, the moment people protest, the moment people are ready to fight for what they have, um, you know, fight for their rights and to access to services, uh, suddenly these services are made available. And how do you see the future? This was a united front effort. Uh, were the unions involved nationally? And do you think that the labor movement in South Africa is going to unite in action uh, against the water, the power closures and the government, which 
according to your report, is actually um, allowing this kind of uh, uh, power shutdown, particularly of black working class poor communities. The fact that Softus NEC had called for participation in the shutdown on a united front basis was very positive development. Um, it also allowed many left-wing community-based organizations to endorse the shutdown. In general, people are not supportive of uh, or left-wingers and, and activists uh, in communities are not supportive of the economic freedom uh, fight is they, they, the EFF, they, they often see as uh, left and sometimes right populist, uh, or rather left populist moving dramatically to the right, also embroiled in, um, in, in, in uh, corrupt activities as the VBS scandal uh, is as indicated. And uh, it's only when SAFTU endorsed the, the, the United Front action that activists actually got up to organize. However, within SAFTU, there seems to be huge problems. Uh, the labor bureaucracy is an area where people fight for power and for, um, you know, the ability to rule over others and the working class in general. And a uh, big union like NUMSA, for instance, uh, was largely absent from the uh, shutdown activity. In fact, NUMSA was to organize a visit to the bourgeois courts, uh, which was uh, uh, which was busy adjudicating on its application against load shedding. And rather than participating in mass activity against load shedding and against the, the cutoff of uh, uh, services or the lack of services, uh, they uh, organized a protest uh, to, the lay, to, to the court, to the high court in Pretoria. However, because of the shutdown, the high court application was heard um, uh, uh, virtually, was held virtually, and it's only tomorrow uh, that uh, the court will be meeting in person in Pretoria and uh, NUMSA will be attending the court uh, uh, or having organized its members to participate in a protest uh, at the court. Um, in our view, you know, this is absolutely unacceptable uh, because it is critical that the that the trade union movement act as a united force and uh, the differences within the trade union movement are meant to be put aside so that workers could act together and uh, in a united way and show the power of the working class. Okay. I suppose you're going to face this kind of problem. Okay, one one. thank you for joining us on Pacifica. We've been talking with Shaheen Khan. Uh, he is an activist, a community activist uh, in South Africa who participated in a United Front action against the power outages uh, in South Africa. So thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Dick Plactigan, who serves on... KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Sometimes I'm just quick on the trigger. Dick Plaktigan, who serves on the board of the United Neighbors for Los Angeles, provides us with his written commentary. UN released its latest and most ominous climate report, and City Hall's response is, Like most Angelinos, you have been glued to weather reports, but still waiting for stories that link one of the wettest years on record to the climate crisis. As for City Hall's response, other than swift water rescues, removing downed trees and repairing hot electric wires, there is little else. The least story remains how local government can use a self-imposed homeless crisis to justify lucrative upzoning changes for big real estate owners and developers. Even though these handouts make the climate crisis worse, because they lead to energy-intensive and auto-dependent luxury apartments, this is what concerns City Council. While City Council 
while, while City Hall averts its eyes from the obvious. Droughts, wildfires, invasive species, storms, and sea level rise, they cannot claim nobody ever told us. The new IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change climate report from the UN was dramatically summarized by the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Today's report is a cold red for humanity. The alarm bells are deafening and the evidence is refutable. Greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuel burning and deforestation are choking our planet and putting billions of people at immediate risk. Global heating is affecting every region on Earth, with many of the changes becoming irreversible. Unfortunately, if you wait for City Hall's response to the latest UN climate report, you will wait in vain. Despite detailed guidelines from the governor's Office of Research and Planning, Los Angeles does not have a climate change element in the city's charter required general plan. City Hall has also ignored a new California law requiring all cities and counties to adopt a general plan environmental justice element. Instead, Los Angeles had put it, put it, its eggs in the basket of upzoning, which allows real estate investors to easily build highly profitable, auto-oriented market rate and luxury apartments. This approach is based on three observed data justifications that new expensive infill apartments built on expensive land magically trickle down to, number one, house the overcrowded and homeless, number two, increase transit ridership, and number three, reduce the greenhouse gases emissions responsible for climate change. What do Angelinos pay for this negligence? There are at least five ways that City Hall's non-response to the climate crisis degrades the quality of life for Los Angeles residents. Number one, upzoning inflates the price of land. A big surprise, the cost of housing. Number two, upzoning increases economic inequality, another cause of the housing crisis. Number three, because new, because most new apartment buildings consist of market rate or luxury units, their tenants have high incomes, own cars, and rarely use mass transit. This is a major reason for declining transit ridership in Los Angeles, especially in neighborhoods like Hollywood, where many new infill auto-dependent luxury apartments are near subway stations. Number four, when real estate investors pay cash for homes and apartments, the cost of housing, homelessness, overcrowding, and out-migration all increase. And number five, if when upzoning leads to an increase in neighborhoods' population, existing infrastructure and services fail since the, since the densification of older neighborhoods ignores parks, schools, fire stations, streets, sidewalks, streets, trees, water mains, electric grills, storm drains, sanitary sewers, and related systems. What should City Hall do in lieu of its inaction on the climate crisis, Platkin asks? This list is only a beginning, a starting point for municipal efforts to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions responsible for the climate crisis. Number one, immediately prepare and adopt general plan climate change and environmental justice elements. Number two, increase the budget of the Bureau of Street Services Urban Forestry Division. Number three, follow the example of Kansas City and make transit free. Number four, design, pay for, and build last mile public improvements of all metro light and heavy rail stations without parking facilities for cars, bicycles, and scooters, as well as smooth shaded sidewalks, wayfaring signs, and streetscape transit Right ridership will not increase without those things. And number five, repair LA's broken down sidewalks and streets to increase walking for short trips. Even though the climate crisis is headed for the point of no return, there is plenty that Los Angeles can do to mitigate and adapt to the new normal. Dick Plactigan is a retired Los Angeles city planner who works on local planning issues for City Watch LA. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. Now International News Digest from Non-NATO Media with Polina Vasiliev. For KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, here are today's 
International highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. The UK has announced its intentions to send toxic, depleted uranium ammunition to Ukraine. Russian President Putin raised the issue at his meeting with Chinese President Xi. The UK has announced not only the supply of tanks to Ukraine, but also shells with depleted uranium. It seems that the West has really decided to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian, not in words, but in reality. If all of this happens, Russia will have to react accordingly, based on the fact that the collective West is beginning to use weapons with a nuclear component. Depleted uranium artillery has been used by U.S. and Western militaries to pierce opponents' armored weaponry, especially tanks, despite the fact that it's known for turning former combat zones into uninhabitable wastelands. RT's Steve Sweeney explains the implication of the UK's plan to provide such ammunitions to Kiev. This announcement appears to be a very dangerous escalation. Now, of course, the use of depleted uranium remains incredibly controversial, and it's a, a grey area in terms of the legislation. Now, the United States used uh, depleted uranium, perhaps most famously in the Iraqi town of uh, Fallujah, leading to a rise in birth defects, uh, abnormalities, cancers, miscarriages, and this kind of thing, with a study uh, saying that uh, the rising cancer there was worse than that scene in Hiroshima, where, of course, the United States dropped an atom bomb at the end of the Second World War. Now, I've spoken to medics on the ground there. I was there just last week, and they said that there was undeniably a causal link between the use of depleted uranium and these, uh, these birth defects and uh, you know, other health issues. But they also told me that they've been pressured by the United States not to speak out against, uh, against this. Now, I heard this many, many times, and, of course, the report that I just referred to was barely covered in the Western uh, press, meaning the scandal in Fallujah has really been covered up. But here's what some of those on the ground have said. We didn't expect our first child to be born deformed. Before the U.S. invasion, children were rarely born with deformities in Fallujah, maybe one or two cases out of a thousand births. A year later, we decided to have another baby, but the second baby was also born deformed. My father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. They told us that he is sick and feeling poorly. The reason is that Fallujah was a battleground from 2005 to 2013, especially in the district we are living in. We are not the first or the last case. U.S. forces bombed the city here with white phosphorus and other weapons. Now, of course, it's not the just the US, NATO admitted to dropping uh, some 31,000 uranium missiles during the 1999 bombing of Yugoslavia, with more than 300 Italian soldiers said to have died as a result of exposure to the material. They're currently involved in a court case against the military alliance. Now, some experts have said that the use of depleted uranium presents a major global threat. It's worth quoting one academic study which described depleted uranium as the Trojan horse of nuclear war. Now, it said the use of depleted uranium weaponry, defying all international treaties, will slowly annihilate all species on Earth, including the human species. And yet the United States continues to do so with full knowledge of its destructive potential. Now, unsurprisingly, perhaps then, that the US, along with France and Britain, have led opposition to calls for a ban on the use of depleted uranium on the battlefield. Uh, Britain has quite absurdly, perhaps, claimed that uh, depleted uranium shells are no more radioactive than household appliances, while the US has repeatedly denied a causal link between the use of depleted uranium and these illnesses and cancers and birth defects that we've uh, heard about. And to admit otherwise would lead them open to potential war crimes charges. Uh, you know, this isn't the first time that we've heard the concerns raised about the use of depleted uranium. Back in January, of course, uh, the White House refused to confirm whether it was sending uh, these ammunition tipped with uranium to, to use in uh, Ukraine. But what we can say about what's happened is it's a very controversial move and it could dangerously escalate things in Ukraine at a time when others are talking about a peaceful resolution. Yemen's warring sides have achieved a significant prisoner exchange deal after an intense round of negotiations in Switzerland. Robert Carter reports. Success. 
After 10 days of hard-pressed negotiations in Switzerland, Yemen's rival sides have agreed to a prisoner swap, which will see 887 detainees returned to their loved ones. After years of deadlock, this latest United Nations-backed deal suggests relations are moving in the right direction, with an additional pledge to meet again in May. The agreement comes just ahead of Islam's holy month of Ramadan, which is set to begin, and will certainly raise hopes of a final resolution to the conflict. The resumption of ties between Iran and Saudi Arabia mirror the sense of regional optimism. The UN's special envoy for Yemen praised the development, but issued a timely reminder, much still needs to be done. I also would like to remind all of us that much remains to be done. A comprehensive and sustainable end to the conflict is necessary if Yemen is to recover from the devastating toll the eight-year conflict has had on its men and women. Press TV secured an exclusive talk with Yemen's head of prisoner affairs, who led Sana'a's delegation. He admitted Saudi's role in the latest talks, however expressed concern at the inability of the UN to achieve more meaningful results. We are happy for this achievement, the one we reached today, to free our prisoners, and we are happy because we will make the prisoners' family happy. There are slowdowns from the UN to move other issues forward, and they also face obstacles from the aggression coalition in the human rights field. They've only been able to sort out only a small part of the prisoner situation. Of course, Saudis are directly present in this round of talks because we have captured Saudi fighters on the front lines. There is a Saudi delegation from Riyadh, and they talk about their prisoners. That's why they are a big part of these talks. Saudi Arabia and its allies launched the devastating war on Yemen in March 2015, with armed and logistical support from their Western partners, leaving hundreds of thousands of Yemenis dead. The most recent truce, which began in April 2022, had rekindled hopes of a lasting peace, but the Saudi-led coalition breached the terms of the ceasefire agreement, prompting Yemenis to continue resistance. Onlookers hope 2023 will not see a repeat. The UK police is institutionally racist and misogynist, a new report says. Press TV's Saeed Pereza has more. Black community leaders demanding immediate action to reform Britain's largest police force, coinciding with an official report into the Metropolitan Police by victims' rights and social welfare expert Louise Casey. In her 363-page report, she describes the whole force as homophobic, misogynistic and racist. Central to her findings, the Met's failure in its duty to vet officers and protect women and children. It was exactly that failure that prompted the report. In March 2021, Wayne Cousins, a serving Metropolitan Police officer, abducted, tortured, raped and killed Sarah Everard. Cousins was jailed for life. His conviction prompted another woman to come forward accusing another officer, David Carrick, convicted of raping 12 victims over 17 years. Police Commissioner Mark Rowley has welcomed the report, but stopped short of admitting the force he leads is institutionally racist. We have um, racist, misogynists and homophobes in the organization, and it's not just about individuals. We have systemic failings, management failings and cultural failings. The reason, and I respect um, Louise using that term, the reason I don't use it, um, I think it's a very ambiguous term, on the whole, the report is condemning of this big organization, pointing to the fact that it has lost public confidence and consent, and that it has to wake up, own up to the problems plaguing it, and engage in wholesale across-the-board reforms. Black community leaders, though, say they're concerned the reform may not go far enough. This is just another report saying the same thing that's been said for decades now in this here country. The uh, Metropolitan Police is institutionally racist, um, policing is harmful, it's misogynistic, it is homophobic. And for me as a black woman, the police, the Met Police is uh, an anti-black uh, organisation, anti-black racism organisation. In February, the charity inquest found that black people are seven times more likely than white people to die after being restrained by the police. 
In Metropolitan Police in London, a black person, you've got 69 um, chances out of a thousand to be stopped and searched. If you're white, it's 24 um, out of a thousand. Black people are five times more likely to be tasered than white people. Um, you could go on and on and on. The report is a wake-up call for the Metropolitan Police. Its author, as do these minority community leaders, says her recommendations are not to be picked from, but to be implemented. Without them, she says, the force may need to be disbanded. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. California Dreaming with Darren Brown of the Red Star Report gives a commentary about the banning of books and who is easily attacked and why. Hey, Rebels. Today, I need to talk to you about something that happened this weekend. Something that didn't get a whole lot of media coverage, so you may not even be aware of it, but you should be. So we all know the past several months, uh, the right wing has really been increasing their attack on LGBTQ folks. Fox News, right wing media, podcasts, social media. Um, there's been this relentless rhetoric about grooming and pedophilia and uh, all this type of thing. Evangelical preachers have stood at their pulpits and called for the murders of gays and lesbians. Uh, we've had over 350 anti-LGBTQ bills advance in state legislatures all across the country, including, get this, 29 in Texas alone, 29. We've seen countless incidences of stochastic terrorism and targeted terrorism the Q Club shooting in Colorado, the Patriot Front uh, white supremacist group in Idaho that was arrested a few months ago. Uh, we've seen public book burnings, over uh, 120 threats and attacks against drag shows and drag performers all across the country in 2022 alone. And we've seen Proud Boys and other militia groups show up to libraries and school board meetings and city council meetings, threatening people and uh, causing a lot of chaos. So LGBTQ folks are, are really in the crosshairs right now. So given all that, it shouldn't be surprising what happened this past weekend. So in Norfolk, Virginia, there is a small scientific uh, research institute uh, that conducts research on human sexuality, gender identity, uh, and queer studies. The institute holds an activist uh, group that uh, fights for LGBTQ rights and fights against some of this legislation that I described that's uh, come forward in these state legislatures. It also offers resources for contraception marriage and sex counseling, uh, gynecological services, transition therapy, and uh, general sex education. So it does a lot of different things. Well, on Saturday, a group of Proud Boys attacked this institute. They broke into their offices. They gained access to all of their files and documents and records, and they damaged their computers. One of the Proud Boys even uh, stood up and gave a speech to the rest of their members about how by doing this, they were simply defending Western civilization and American values. They then took all the files, records, and books that they could gather. They brought them out uh, in public and held a book burning, a bonfire in public. And the estimates are now that up to 20,000 uh, books and files may already have been destroyed. Now, as I said, it really shouldn't be surprising that something like this could happen 
in America. But you might be wondering, why have I not heard about this before? Why is there no media coverage about this? Why is this the first time that I'm learning about this event? I'll tell you why. So the reason that you haven't heard about this event in the media is because it did not happen this past Saturday. It did not happen in Virginia. I've actually been lying to you the past few minutes. This event occurred on May 6th, 1933 at the Institute for Sexology in Berlin, Germany. The attack was not carried out by the Proud Boys, of course. It was carried out by the German Student Union, uh, who were a group of young brown shirts, uh, and they were joined a few days later by uh, the SA, the official paramilitary wing of the Nazis. Folks, I don't know what to tell you. If you can't see the historical parallels, you don't want to see them. You want to pretend not, not to see them. And the attack I just described to you was one of the first major acts of political terrorism conducted by the Nazis. It occurred just a few months after Hitler was appointed chancellor and just a few weeks after the Reichstag fire. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind that something similar could happen uh, after the next Republican president is elected? And this is something you need to understand about these fascists. They always go after the most vulnerable groups first. You see this in every authoritarian fascist regime. One of the first groups they go after is the queer community. Why? Two reasons. So the first, as I said, is they're vulnerable. They're easy to attack. Uh, they're a minority. Uh, it's easy to scapegoat them. And a lot of people will just turn their heads and pretend that they don't see what's going on. But there's a second reason, and this is even uh, the more important reason, and that is that the mere existence of queer people is a threat to the fascist worldview. So what do I mean by that? Well, the fascist worldview is built on hierarchy and domination and rigid boundaries between groups of people. Um, rigid boundaries with no nuance, no ambiguity, no shades of gray, everything's black and white. And queer people don't fit into any of these well-defined groups. They blur the lines. They defy easy categories. They don't accept rigid boundaries and definitions of who they are. Their mere existence is a threat to, to the whole fascist worldview. And they can't accept that. They can't take that. And that's why they're attacking these folks. That's, that's the real reason. Uh, that's why they can't stop talking about grooming and pedophilia and saving the children and on and on. That, that's what this is about. And if you think they're going to stop with the queer community, I really have to question your intelligence. You could be the richest the whitest, the most privileged, um, most religious, faithfully, weekly church-going uh, Christian male in the country. And the moment you stand up for these people and their rights, the moment you express solidarity with them, uh, they will treat you as if there's no distinction between you and them. Uh, they will... They will say you're a fake Christian, you're demonic, they'll call you a traitor. So uh, they don't care how often you go to church. Hell, half of them don't even go to church regularly anyway. Um, and you'll be up against the wall with everyone else. So, If you don't see the direction that this movie is playing out, um, I, I don't know what else to tell you. Um, the parallels are so obvious it's really you have to you have to work hard to ignore it. 
Here is a commentary with Lizette Silu from the Women's Leadership Project with a focus on colorism and the divide between Africans and African Americans. Hello, my name is Lizette Silu and I'm 18 years old. Growing up African, especially Congolese in America, has not been easy. I've been discriminated against, objectified, stereotyped, and victimized by people's colorist prejudices. Anything you can name, I've experienced. And while it's one thing to experience this treatment from a non-person of color, it hurts much more when it's coming from people who look like you. I'd say it all started when I got to elementary school. I knew I was different from the other students, but I didn't necessarily understand how. Not until I was made fun of for my name on a daily basis, asked why I was so black and dark and called an African booty scratcher, as well as other numerous insults. This made me hate myself, my name, and my culture. I dreaded going to school every day, and I didn't tell anyone what I was experiencing because I felt alone. Things got worse when I got to middle school. My body started to be objectified inside and outside of school. I'd be counted out of activities due to me being African. And one time when I was at the mall, someone yelled, Sarkisha, don't, to me. It took a long time for me to love everything about myself and my culture. I grew from the freshman who hated when people found out I was African to the confident senior who talks about her culture until she can't anymore. But not only do I stand up for African culture, I stand up for black culture as a whole because it's a beautiful thing when we all come together. This is why I have joined Women's Leadership Project to help bridge the divide between Africans and African Americans and inspire others to bridge it as well. My name is Lizette Silu from the Women's Leadership Project reporting for KPFK Rebel Alliance News. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and it is time for your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar Tips. Cesar Chavez Day in South L.A. featuring live entertainment, a resource fair, and giveaways in celebration of Cesar Chavez's legacy and the urban farmers working today in South Los Angeles. Saturday, March 25th, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Stanford Avalon Community Garden, 658 East 111th Street in Los Angeles. For more info about this free family-friendly event, search on eventbrite.com for Cesar Chavez Day in South L.A. Meet up for Arthur Talk with Indigenous political prisoner Aso Blanco and Michael Novick editor, publisher of Turning the Tide, Journal of Inter Intercommunal Solidarity from Anti-Racist LA. They will be reading from and discussing the Blue Agave Revolution, Poetry of the Blind Rebel, Saturday, March 25th, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at All Power Books, 4874 West Adams Boulevard in Los Angeles. Save the date with Miles Ahead of Cancer that continues to honor the legacy of their son who was diagnosed with brain cancer at the age of three. Join them for Walk for Kids on Saturday, April 29th at the Pasadena Rose Bowl Stadium. For details, go to Miles Ahead, M-Y-L-E-S, Ahead of Cancer.org. Black Funders Network of the Bay Area presents Pearls of Wisdom, Rep Reproductive Rights in the Black Community. Thursday, March 30th, 3 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. on Zoom. Also on March 30th, remember Black Women for Wellness for a green table talk with their environmental justice team about how heat affects pregnancy, development, and reproductive health at 10 a.m. on Zoom. For more information on Black Women for Wellness, go to our into RSVP for these discussions. Go to BWWLA. Dot org. Well, I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. You've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. KPFK is a progressive media outlet challenging corporate media perspectives and providing a voice to the voiceless communities. Help keep KPFK strong and independent source of music, arts, news, and information and donate at kpfk.org. 
Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all Rebel Alliance News contributors. We hope you will join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. Coming up next, Feminist Magazine. Looking for another way to support KPFK? By donating your vehicle, you're supporting the programming you value. Donating your vehicle is quick and easy. You can always pledge your support at kpfk.org. You appreciate 